please turn in your Bibles again to the Gospel of John and chapter 20. The Gospel of John and chapter 20. For a number of weeks, we've been studying the heart of Jesus, now that he has ascended back into heaven, the heart of Christ for us who are his disciples here below in this world. And we have begun to see that with all the glory, majesty that now belongs to him, he does not stand aloof from us in this world He is not unmindful or unconcerned with us in our struggles and our temptations here below, but he continues with the same love and affection and care for us as he has always had, and his thoughts toward us are very precious, and they are more in number every day than the sand upon the seashore. So far in our study, we have been looking at the discourse of Jesus in the upper room in John 13 through 17, because throughout that entire discourse, in everything that Jesus says, he is anticipating his return to his heavenly Father. In all of his promises, his words of comfort, this is what lies behind him, his ascension back to God. And so in those chapters, we have a revelation of what he will be like, And what his heart will be toward us who are his disciples once he takes his seat back in glory. This morning we continue our study and now we look at passages after his resurrection from the dead. He has died upon the cross. The Roman soldiers came and they confirmed his death. One of them pierced him in his side with a spear and immediately came out water and blood. Joseph of Arimathea came and, after receiving permission from Pilate, took his body down from the cross and laid him in his own tomb. The humanity of Jesus was like our humanity in his life and also in his death and burial. It was sown a perishable body. It was sown in weakness and dishonor. But when he was raised, he was raised imperishable with a body of glory and power. Not the full glory that John saw in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, but nevertheless a body of resurrection, imperishable of glory and power. And it had to be so. He had to have a body of resurrection to sustain the glory of heaven, which he was soon to enter into his resurrection was his first step into his glory it was the beginning of his exaltation it was the entrance the doorway of his ascension back to his heavenly father and so what we see in the heart of jesus toward his disciples after his resurrection gives us a view into what he will be like and what his heart will continue to be toward us once he returns to the Father in heaven. We'll read once again here verses 11 down through verse 17. Verse 11, But Mary, Mary Magdalene, was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, 
Tell, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. These verses are about Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Back in verse 1, she had come early in the morning to the tomb while it was still dark, and she found the stone rolled away, and the tomb was empty. Then she ran and told Peter and John, who came to the tomb as well, and they found it empty. And now, now in verse 10, they have departed They have gone home, we see, verse 10, that the disciples went away again to their own homes. The other disciples, Peter and John, they have left the tomb, but Mary has lingered before the empty tomb. Her love for Jesus was such that she could not leave the place where they had laid him. She did not know where he was or what had happened to him, but she had to remain to seek him at the only place where she knew him last to be. And her diligence and her perseverance in seeking after him was richly rewarded because she was the first one to see him alive from the dead and to hear the words of the resurrected Christ. Jesus had told his disciples many times that he must suffer in Jerusalem He must be put to death. On the third day, he would rise again. Mary was like the other disciples. She did not remember or she did not understand his words, and she thought his tomb was empty, not because he had been raised from the dead, but because someone had come and taken his body away. In verse 11, she stood outside the tomb weeping, She looked in, she saw the two angels in white sitting in the tomb, one at his head and the other at his feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. In verse 13, the angel asked Mary a question. Woman, why are you weeping? A very good question because the empty tomb, rather than being a source of weeping, should have been a cause of great joy. Because he was not there, he was risen. There was no need for her to be weeping. Woman, why are you weeping? She answered the angel and then she turned and she saw Jesus standing in front of her and did not know who he was. In verse 15, Jesus asked her the same question again. Woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? She thought he was the gardener. She said to him at the end of verse 15, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She thought Jesus was nowhere to be found. He was in some other place, but he was standing right beside her at that time. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. He spoke her name which she had heard so many times before, and she immediately knew who he was and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. And her weeping was turned into astonished joy, and she threw himself herself at his feet and began to cling to him. She had seen him last hanging upon the cross, but now she sees him standing before her, risen, from the dead. And Jesus, as she clings to him, he gently corrects her in verse 17, and he says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. By her clinging to him, she showed her desire to return to the days before his crucifixion, when he was with them in his physical presence and she desired to cling to him so that he could never leave them again. 
She thought that all would be well if only they had the physical presence of Jesus. And everything would be wrong if she did not. But Jesus tells her here that the time has come for you to no longer know me as you did before. The days of my flesh are over. You must come to know me by faith alone. I have entered into a new state of glory. By my resurrection, I will soon ascend to my heavenly Father. Stop clinging to me, he says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And then he says in the rest of verse 17, But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. These were the very first words that Jesus spoke after his resurrection. His sufferings were over. He is here entering in to his glory. His mind is fixed upon his ascension. He will soon ascend into heaven, but his great concern, his first great concern as he rises from the dead is for the comfort and the consolation of his disciples. He had seen their sorrow at the Last Supper. When they learned of his departure, he knew their grief and their confusion over what had happened to him in his death upon the cross. His desire was to relieve their distress, to bring encouragement to them. The first thing that comes to his mind is, I must send a message to my disciples Go to my brethren, he says, and bring them this news. I ascend. He does not say to them, go to my brethren and tell them, I have been raised from the dead. He tells them, I ascend. Because his ascension must follow his resurrection. The resurrection would be of no value without the ascension to follow. Without the ascension, he would not sit at the right hand of God the Father. Without his ascension back into heaven, there could be no intercession of Jesus for us in this present world. I have been raised from the dead, he says, but this is what must follow my ascension back into heaven. We should never underestimate the great value of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection is a glorious truth, but the resurrection must be followed by his ascension. If someone were to ask us today, well, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then where is he? Because we do not see him, and no man has ever seen him anymore in this world. And here is the answer in the ascension. He has not just been raised from the dead, he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. It is as if Jesus says to his disciples in this message, I ascend. He is saying to them, do you not remember what I said to you at the Last Supper? I must go to my father's house and prepare a place for you. And that's what I am now doing. I will ascend back to him. Go to my brethren, he says, and say to them, I ascend. These four things are always tied together in the Bible. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension, and the intercession of Jesus. One must be followed by the other. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8 in verse 34. He says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The message that he sends to his disciples in verse 17. He says, I ascend, go to my brethren, say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. He wants his disciples to know that his heavenly, his heavenly father is also their heavenly father and his God is their God. 
He is my father and your father, and he is my God and your God as well. But he puts it in this way to carefully show them that there is also a distinction between his relationship with God and theirs. He says, I ascend to my father and your father. He is my father by my eternal divine nature as the son of God, but he is your father by adoption as sons of God. And he says, he is my God from eternity in the union I have with him in the one God in heaven, but he is your God by the covenant of salvation. So there is always this distinction that must be kept in mind between Jesus' relationship with God and ours as well. But then we notice how Jesus refers to his disciples here, which is what do we want to focus our attention upon for the rest of our message this morning? He calls them my brethren. He says, go to my brethren. This is the first time that Jesus ever called his disciples my brethren in the Gospels. He has called them servants, little children. He has even called them my friends. But this is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus ever called his disciples my brethren. It is a term of love and great affection. As brothers are to have love for one another, this is how Jesus uses this term here. It speaks of the bonds of love that cannot be broken, which can only exist in a family. These are my brethren. They are in the closest and the nearest relationship to me. He does not say, go to the brethren, but go to my brethren because they belong to me and they are my brothers in the family of God. It is one thing for Jesus to call us my friends. What a great privilege it is to have Jesus as our friend. But here he calls us my brethren in this close relationship in which he is our elder brother and we are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. A new and higher and more permanent eternal relationship which exists now between God and us through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus, what lies behind Jesus' words here are what is often called adoption in the Bible, in which all believers are adopted by God into his family and we become the children of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. He is our elder brother. We are his brethren in this one family of God. Now Jesus has spoken indirectly of this relationship previously. For example, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven. And then when he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So he has hinted and he has spoken indirectly, but this is the very first time Jesus uses this term, my brethren. And this term, my brethren, it is not just a title, but it is the very pinnacle of our relationship with God in heaven. The highest blessing that could ever come upon us is found in this great truth that we have been adopted into the family of God as the children of God. The benefits are great. The blessings of the gospel, all the great works of God in the gospel, they all seem to tend to point in this direction and lead to this pinnacle relationship of our 
adoption as sons and daughters. The new birth, the new birth is given to us. We are born of God so that we are born into his family. We are born into our earthly families. We are born again into the heavenly family. John says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, this is how they entered this family of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But then the new birth leads to faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And by faith we are justified. Justification is when we are condemned criminals. And we stand before God the judge and he frees us from all penalty and condemnation. But in adoption now, justification must be followed by adoption. He brings us now into his family as the children of God. Justification is a courtroom scene. Adoption is a living room scene in which we are brought in with all the love and affection of God the Father for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what has happened to us if we are believers in Jesus. Our justification has been followed by adoption. We were condemned criminals. Now we are the children of the living God. Election from eternity has its purpose in adoption. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse, chapter 1 and verse 5, in love, in love he predestined us to what? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sanctification has its fulfillment in our being conformed into the image of his beloved son, our elder brother Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. We often think adoption is for our benefit. It is for Jesus' benefit. God adopted us into his family for the benefit, the glory of Jesus Christ, his beloved son. He loved the son. He gave all things to the son that the son might have many brethren conform to his image and he might be the firstborn, the highest among all his brethren. The Holy Spirit comes to us as the spirit of adoption, so that we may pray to God as our heavenly Father in liberty and cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4 and verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then in glorification, we become the heirs of God and the fellow heirs with Jesus Christ in the world to come. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, Paul says, If children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. That's what lies before us. Christ has merited all things in a new heavens and a new earth. And when we enter there, the glory of our inheritance will be that inheritance which belongs to Christ as he shares it with us. And we will be the fellow heirs of Jesus Christ as the children of God in his glorious family. And so all of these things that God has done in our salvation point to this great truth of our being the brethren in the family of God with our Lord Jesus Christ, election and the new birth justification and sanctification and the Holy Spirit's work and the inheritance of the life to come, they all lead to this great truth that we are the brethren of our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder John could say, see how great a love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God and such we are.
So here is Jesus in John 20 and verse 17. He has just risen from the dead. He is now entering his glory. And this is the way he thinks of us. This is how he regards his disciples and how he views us. This is who we are to him. He calls us, my brethren. What makes this all so remarkable on this occasion is how this followed the most shameful behavior of his disciples since he had last seen them at the Last Supper. The long discourse that he gave to them in that upper room, so many promises, was followed by his leaving and going into the Garden of Gethsemane. He took with him Peter, John, and James into the garden with him. He said to them as he entered the garden, he said, my soul is deeply grieved. To the point of death, he said, remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little further into the garden and fell down upon his face and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Luke tells us that his agony was so great, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He had brought his disciples with him into the garden for some human companionship, some human sympathy, as he began to feel the weight of the wrath of God coming down upon him. But when he came back to his disciples, how did he find them in the garden? Mark tells us he found them sleeping, not once, three times. And he said, could you not watch with me for one hour? He was in agony, crying out upon the ground, and they were sleeping in the garden. His soul was in sorrow to the point of death and they were taking their own rest. From the garden he was arrested and he was brought to Pilate's false trial. Peter stood outside the praetorium and he warmed himself by the fire in the courtyard Three times he was asked if he knew Jesus, and three times he denied that he knew him. Jesus had predicted in the upper room, he said, you will all fall away because of me this night. But Peter spoke so confidently, though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And yet we find that he did so in a most grievous way, three times publicly and even with cursing upon his lips before a servant girl, he swore, I do not know that man. Then Jesus was crucified, and they all abandoned him and fled for their own safety. Not even one of his disciples remained even near the cross. Mark tells us that they all fled and left him. One of his disciples was wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and Mark tells us they seized him, but he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. They were acting like men that would do anything to not be identified with Jesus. We would not put ourselves above them because we are like them unless Jesus helps us. But we see how shameful their behavior was. And it was at the time of his greatest love for them when he was giving his life and shedding his blood for their sins that they cared only for themselves and they abandoned him fleeing for their own safety. Greater love has no one than this than that he laid down his life for his friends, Jesus said. He had proven himself to be faithful to them as their friends, as his friend. 
but they had proven how faint-hearted they were toward him in their fleeing from him at the cross. The two men on the road to Emmaus, they spoke like men who had given up their faith. They were in their sadness as they were walking along the road, and they said, we were hoping, we were hoping past tense. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. It is as if their hope, their faith is now gone and there is nothing left. And this is the way it was with all of his disciples. How unbelieving they seem to be. And after all of this, we would expect that when Jesus rose from the dead, and the very first time that he would speak of his disciples, that he would address them in some other term, that he would perhaps even have some words of reproof, some gentle, perhaps even words of rebuke, perhaps strong words for them, for what they have done. They have left him. They have fled from him in his sufferings. Perhaps he would stand aloof from them for a while. But we find no such thing. As soon as he rises from the dead and he speaks to Mary, he addresses them in this term, by this term, my brethren. He does not remind them of any of their wrongs. He is so full of mercy to them, all is forgiven and nothing is remembered. He can only speak to them in this closest possible Relation, they are still my brethren. They have wandered like sheep, lost, but he would rather restore them than rebuke them. They were in great distress and perplexity, but he would rather comfort them than condemn them. They had sorrow, he would rather heal their wounds than open new ones. And here we see the great love of Jesus continuing in his resurrection. Now he is ascending and he calls his disciples, my brethren. What he is doing here is what he said he would do with Old Testament Israel in Hosea chapter 14 and verse 4, where the Lord said of wandering Israel, He said, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has been turned away from them. In Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 18, he says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him. This is the heart of Christ toward our disciples Toward us as his disciples, even in the midst of our weaknesses and failures against him. It is what John said, that he loves his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Psalm 103 reads this, that he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As the east, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. And just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. So Jesus here, in his resurrection glory, soon to ascend back into heaven to take his seat at the throne of God. He addresses, he speaks of us in these terms, my brethren, go and tell them that I am ascending. And it is as if he is saying to them, when I ascend, when I ascend to my father, this is how I will still speak of my disciples. I will call you my father, my brethren. This is how he will speak to his father in heaven. That is the line of thought that we see in this passage. But we do not need to imagine that this is true. Because we have the most clear evidence that it is true in the book of Hebrews. We turn there, chapter 2. 
chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, and we'll be looking at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2, I'll read verses 9 through 11. But we do not see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that the grace of God might, that he might, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In the beginning of verse 11, it is Jesus who is the one who sanctifies, and we are the ones who are sanctified. If we were Hebrews, to whom this letter was written, and we had the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures in the Septuagint, we would, as we read these words, he who sanctifies, we would be immediately reminded of a number of passages in the Old Testament in which the Lord declares that he is the one who sanctifies his people. Exodus 31 and verse 13, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 20 and verse 8, and you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And many other passages, the Lord is the one who sanctifies his people. And here it is Jesus. It is Jesus who sanctifies his people. I am the Lord, he says, who sanctifies you. This speaks of what we mentioned last week, positional or definitive sanctification, in which at the beginning of the Christian life, we are set apart from the sinful world, consecrated for holy service to God. We are unclean by nature. We are defiled. We are unfit. We are unfit for the worship. We are unclean in God's sight, unable to worship him because of our sins. But Jesus has purified us by his blood upon the cross. And so he has set us apart from the sinful world. He has consecrated us so that now we are able because of his holy work on our behalf. By his blood, we are able to enter the holy place. We are able to come into the service and worship of God. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is all about. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he made purification of sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13, he speaks of the blood of Jesus cleansing us in our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, he says that we have been sanctified. We have been set apart for God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ Once for all. So here in verse 11, both he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, we ourselves, he says we are all from one. The New American Standard puts the word father there. It's in italics, which indicates that the translators added that word. Other Bibles read from one source, from one family or one human race. The King James Bibles, they just leave it as one. We are all from one. There's good reason perhaps in the following verses to put the word father there because we are spoken of as the children of God in the following verses, verse 13 and verse 14. But it seems that Perhaps the best understanding is that this refers to one family as the children 
of God. So we may look at this as one race, one humanity, which is what Jesus, which is what the writer of the book of Hebrews refers to later, that we are all from one humanity. In verse 14, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, the very same flesh and blood, the very same humanity that belongs to us was taken by Jesus in the incarnation, yet without any sin. Then we see in the beginning of verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, not in some things, in all things, his humanity was not a phantom humanity. His humanity was not just an appearance of a man, but it was a true humanity that belonged to Jesus in all things, in everything that pertains to us, even in our weaknesses, in our mind, in our will, our emotions. We have sorrow, we have joy, we have hope, we have fears in all things that pertain to us in our humanity now belong to Jesus, yet without any sin. And because of this, he was tempted as we are, he says in verse 18, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was, he was tempted in the very same way as we are in all of our temptations. But because of his union with us, in our human nature and in everything that pertains to our temptations and trials, the writer says at the end of verse 11, for which reason or because of his union with us, he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. This speaks of Jesus here on his throne of glory in heaven in majesty. This is not Jesus on earth speaking to Mary just after the resurrection. This is Jesus in his intercession in the very holy place of heaven addressing his heavenly father and he calls us my brethren still. He proves it by quoting from verse 12 of Psalm 20, in verse 12 from Psalm 22, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. This is what Jesus is doing from the throne of heaven. He is proclaiming the Father's name to his brethren, and he is in the midst of them singing God's praise. There is a very great difference between us and Jesus. He is the one who sanctifies we are the ones who are sanctified. Back in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, the writer spoke of the deity of Christ, his majesty and glory as the Son of God. He said he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And the Father said, let all the angels of God worship him. Chapter 1, verse 13, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for my feet? Chapter 1 is all about the deity and the glory of Jesus as God. But this chapter, beginning verse 5, the writer now emphasizes the humanity, the true humanity of Jesus. And both must be held on to. He is both God and he is man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. And by his human nature, he is now united to us forever. And his humanity is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And there he now identifies with us in our weakness, in our frailties, even in our failures, our sufferings, our trials, our temptations. He identifies with us in all things. He was a man of sorrows himself, and he was acquainted with grief. And he now sits at the right hand of God, and he is not ashamed to call us his brethren in the midst of our sorrows and our griefs here below. 
He is our great high priest, yes. He represents us before the Father in heaven. But he is not just our representative. He is our brother at the throne of God. And we are his brethren here below. Sometimes people think it is to their great advantage when they have friends in high places who can do great things for them. But we have the closest relative. We have a kinsman, a brother, a redeemer who is in the highest place of all, in the throne room of God, who can do all things for us. He is our hero, our brother. Not many of us have a brother who is a hero. But we do in heaven. Our brother, our hero, is our brother at the right hand of God the Father. He is the captain, the great captain of our salvation. He is our brother as well at the throne of God. It is like Joseph in the book of Genesis. So mistreated by his brothers. Yet when they came to him and when he was seated Raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, he revealed himself to them. And he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother. This is what Jesus does for us now as he is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He says to us in this passage, I am your brother and you are my brethren. And I am not ashamed to call you my brethren. Joseph had strong affections for his brothers And he met their needs in the famine. Jesus has much greater love for us. And he has all power and authority to meet all of our needs and protect us in every time of trouble. When it says here that he is not ashamed, it is a kind of understatement. It is a negative statement. But what is actually meant is the positive statement in a very much greater way. So the real meaning is that he is eager. And he is glad, and he cheerfully calls us his brethren in heaven. A most astonishing thing, because we feel so deeply our weaknesses, our failures, our sins. And the things that come to our mind is so many reasons, so many reasons why he would be ashamed of us. He is holy, we are defiled. He has glorified the Father in all things. We have dishonored him. He has all goodness in himself. We have no good in us. A great many reasons why we would think that he would be ashamed of us. But what verse 11 is saying to us that he has sanctified us. He has so purified us and cleansed us by his blood. That we are so sanctified in the sight of his heavenly Father. That he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. We often speak of the condescension of Jesus. And we think of him coming down from heaven and becoming a man. But his condescension has not ended. And in this sense, his condescension continues at the right hand of God the Father as he continues to call us, my brethren. This was a great source of comfort to these Hebrews, to whom, Hebrew believers, to whom the letter was written, because they were in great trials as the people of God. There was persecution. They had lost much. They felt their misery. They were greatly tempted. They were tempted to depart from the faith. They were tempted to lose heart. They were tempted to conform themselves to the world around them. And where could they go? Where could they go for help and comfort and support in the midst of all these trials and temptations that were bearing down upon them? The only answer is Jesus. They had a brother at the right hand of God the Father. Would a brother ever forsake his brother in great need? He would never disown them. He would never be ashamed of them. They are his brethren. And he will help them. And the same is true for us today. 
in every time of need. The only thing that we have to fear is the evil heart of unbelief. And the only other thing, we must not be ashamed of him in this world, of his ways, of his gospel, or of his truth. If we hold fast our confession of faith, if we are not ashamed of him, then he will never be ashamed of us. And he will call us, my brethren. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, we are all of one family. And he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. What a blessed thing it is to have a savior like our Lord Jesus Christ. May we rest in him and trust in him in all of our needs. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, we do bless you and thank you for all the glorious things that you have done for us in our salvation. To give us a new birth, bring us into your family, justify us and sanctify us, to grant us the Holy Spirit that we might pray as we should. And thank you for the inheritance that is to come where we will be fellow heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ in this glorious family that you have brought us into. Lord, help us to rejoice in how our Lord Jesus views us now in heaven as he looks down upon us. Help us to receive this by faith and to believe and to rejoice that he calls us my brethren. Thank you that we may rest ourselves upon you and trust in you in all of our needs. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jesus, and forgive us of all of our sins, all of our wanderings, and cleanse us afresh in your precious blood and help us, renew us, that we might be your faithful people. Be pleased to hear us now and bless your word to each of us And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.